0: We are going to be in Mark chapter 12, and this is actually the first week. It's kind of a crossover, so this is our our crossover week, where um, we are going to be wrapping uh, uh, up—well, not wrapping up. We're going to be uh, starting our Advent series, um, but we're starting it by uh, teaching on a passage in Mark um, that we see um, where, where we deal, where it kind of is a good feed-in into the Advent season. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be having an Advent series um, called Why Does It Matter? And that is, uh, that is going to be, it's just an, the idea of all of these theological truths um, that are found um, in the Incarnation. They are big deals. And prophecies um, point to the fact that, that, these, that these theological truths are going to be communicated through the Incarnation. And, and the idea is that this is, this is a really big deal. But the question, we can, we can talk about those things, but I think a lot of times we, we understand them at a certain level, but we don't always, um, we're not always able to articulate to others or even to ourselves why it matters. Why is it so beautiful that these things um, are communicated? And so um, that's what we are going to be endeavoring to do here this morning. So in chapter 12, starting in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for today. I thank you, God, for uh, the people in this room that we get to gather together and worship you. I thank you, God, for the people who will be listening to this online because they were unable to make it here today. I thank you, God, that no matter, no matter what this, your word being proclaimed, I pray that it would take root in our lives and in our hearts. I pray that we would see the beauty and that we would not, um, that we would not seek to understand you by simplifying you, but that we would just seek to marvel at you and that we would take great joy and encouragement in knowing that you are God, that we are not, and that you have loved us. And for those who have trusted in Christ, you have redeemed us and adopted us as your children. Be with us now in the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So when we talked about doing um, this series I really thought about it as um, just wanting to make sure that we that we really grasp these theological truths and that we can that we can love them and that it can um, it would stir our hearts to really worship God and when but when we just dis- decided to do it we we thought, okay, well, how do we, um, what, what things specifically are we going to take? And, and what do we, we want to teach in this? And in this passage here was kind of the, the um, it was really the catalyst for this whole thing. Because in this passage, Jesus is answering the question. He's, he's starting to teach now. He's already refuted so many of their challenges, right? So he's already dealt with the questions from the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But now he's beginning to teach them more intentionally. And what, the way he teaches this He's starting to give them a, a picture that the Messiah is much bigger than they originally thought. So we've talked so many times about how they were waiting for the Messiah to deliver them as the nation of Israel from the oppression of the Roman government. And what Jesus is trying to help them understand is that this whole thing is so much bigger than you realize. And he does it in a really unique way. He poses the question of whose son is the Christ? He's asking a really big question here. The view that the Messiah um, would would come and would deliver God's people, and by this point they were thinking he would come from the line of David because of the prophecies in the Old Testament, that that there would be a king, he would come from the line of David. Jesus is asking this question, whose son is the Christ? And he's saying, You know that he comes from the line of David, but if he comes from the line of David, why is David calling him Lord? If he's a descendant, why is he calling him Lord? He's almost answering them, he's almost teaching them in in a riddle of sorts. And he likes to do that with parables, but this is almost a riddle. Why would David call Jesus, or why would David call the Messiah, my Lord? if he's his descendant. Because everybody would have known that would would be inappropriate. A father, even if his son were the king or somebody in power, a father would never say to his son, he would never call him my lord like other people would do. So the question is, why? Why is he doing that? And so we're going to look at this because one of the things that's happening here is we see in this passage, we see that Jesus is far more than what they thought. And that leads its way, and he's not just teaching that about himself, but he's teaching something about who God is in this, namely the Trinity. And so we're going to start with the Trinity today. And believe it or not, I am going to, I'm going to keep it fairly brief because the Trinity is something that's so big and so difficult to grasp in our human minds that it would be kind of a fool's errand to run down all kinds of theories about it. But what I want to do today is just tell you why the things that Jesus alludes to in this passage are such good news for us today. You look at this passage and all three members of the Trinity are there. In this simple passage it says David himself in the Holy Spirit declared the Lord said to my Lord. So in that one statement Jesus is invoking the entire Trinity. He says, he doesn't just say David said this. He could have said that. He could have said David said this in the Psalms, but no, he says, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who declares this through David. The Lord, meaning God my father, said to my Lord. So in in the Hebrew, there, the the Psalm that that, um, Jesus is quoting here the Lord is um, Yahweh. The first Lord is Yahweh, and the second Lord is Adonai which is another one for, for Jesus. And so we, we talk about that as a, as a name for Jesus. And so he's declaring all three of these things. And what we realize about the Trinity, just to kind of take a step back from this passage and realize about the Trinity, is the Trinity is everywhere in Scripture. It's constantly being alluded to. It's constantly being um, pointed out in, in, in the power of, of the Trinity. And it's one of the most mysterious things, if not the most mysterious thing in all of Christianity. But it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's in creation where God speaks his word and and it says the spirit hovers over the waters. It's it's right there when he says, let us make man in our image. And there have been many, um, many ways of trying to refute that or trying to explain that away. But the bottom line is it means that the words there are very plural. It is let us make man in our image. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of God being referred to as this kind of the separate entity, but also as God. We clearly see it in, in John chapter 1, where it talks about how in the beginning, the same language is used in Genesis, the word was with God, the word was God, he was with God in the beginning, talking about Jesus. The Trinity is present in, 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 um, in the crucifixion, in the resurrection. The Trinity is um, what provides our salvation. The Trinity is, um, is, is all over the place in the early church. It's, it's in our sanctification. There's many times, like uh, Peter and Paul both refer to um, us being sanctified by God the Father, um, being sanctified by Jesus, and being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so there's these Trinitarian acts everywhere. It's even in just the daily lives of believers from the beginning of the church. In fact, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And we see it in the early church that they were Trinitarians. Paul says simply in 2 Corinthians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So it's everywhere, and it's in this passage. David, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put enemies under your feet. It's everywhere. The Trinity isn't something that we made up to make sense of things. It is something that is stated in Scripture that we try then to make sense of. And yet it's one of the most mysterious things in all of Christianity. There are many things that are hard for us to wrap our our heads around. God's love, the mercy of the cross, all these different things. But nothing defies even language like the Trinity. Think about this. The Trinity is everywhere in Scripture and it's never defined. Our our salvation is defined and given metaphors and analogies. We talk about being redeemed, being bought back from, from from, from slavery to sin. Christ is our substitute. Creation is defined. The kingdom of God is described multiple times in parables saying what it's like. Like you see tons of parables saying the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. You never have one that says the Trinity is like. So why? We, it hasn't stopped us from trying to come up with our own, by the way. Over the years, many analogies have been used to try to explain the Trinity Maybe you've heard some of them, and in this group this size, we could probably shout out some, but you, um, I don't want to because I'm about ready to call all of them heresy. So I don't want to have anybody be like, oh, yeah, this one. Like, yeah, that's heretic. All right. So just anything that you can think of in your head, like ice, water, vapor, the yolk of an egg, the fact that I have different roles I'm a pastor and a father and a, and a husband. All of those things are actually heretical. They're actually forms of heresy throughout the history of the church. So I would encourage you, here's one helpful tip, don't use any of those. When you're trying to help children or help other people you're discipling, help them understand the Trinity, don't use metaphors. Because they will always take you into a bad place. I mean, my, my thought is if God never uses a metaphor for the Trinity, we probably shouldn't either. So how do we then define it and then much less take anything out of it to understand why it's such good news? Like how do we make sure that we don't just look at it and say, well, you know, that's just too big to understand so I guess we just don't even think about it. I'll just think of God however I can think about God. And I want to tell you it is worth thinking about. So I want to just give you a a quick definition. I want to tell you why the mystery is such a beautiful thing of this and then I want to tell you how it's good news and the definition is going to be simple. It's just this. And I get this from Wayne Grudem, who's one of the greatest theologians of our time. And he defines it using three statements. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. That clears it up, right? Piece of cake. God is three persons. So what do we mean by these? God is three persons. So by that we mean God the Father is not God the Son and they are not the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons. And I could go on and on throughout Scripture to demonstrate this, but, but just to look at a, at a couple. One is the one that I already talked about. In the beginning, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So twice it says he was with God, and he was God. And so we have these three distinct, and there we have the Father and the Son are separate. So God the Father is not the same as God the Son. And later in John, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Just think about that he 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 it is so clear that jesus is talking about god the father it'd be kind of weird for him to be talking about these other entities if that's who he was if there weren't three distinct persons why is jesus talking to them and about them like i would never say to my child wait till your pastor gets here like i wouldn't do that that would be ridiculous if, if Lauren said to my kids, hey, go ask your father, and they come and say, hey, dad, can I do this? Be like, oh, no, no, no I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not here. I'm your pastor right now. So you have to wait till your father gets home. That makes no sense. Jesus is talking about them because they are three persons. But not only are they three persons, but each person is fully God. So John 1 says, Jesus, that, that the word was God. He was with God in the beginning And then goes on in verse 3 saying um, that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus, talking specifically about Jesus, Jesus is with God in the beginning and all of creation happens through him. What does that mean? That means Jesus wasn't created by God. It was through him all things were created. Now I realize that right right about now this would be the time where you're thinking, I really wish I would have stayed home. But I want to encourage you to hang in there because there's a beautiful thing that comes in here. If we can do the work of thinking about the Trinity, there's a beautiful thing that comes as a result of this. So each person is fully God. Jesus is fully God. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. But there's very clearly one God. Most clearly stated by Jesus himself when he quotes Deuteronomy 6. When he's talking about the great commandment that we covered a couple of weeks ago. And they asked what was the greatest commandment. And he says, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So these three statements. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. And there is one God. What do we do with that? Jonathan Edwards, another great theologian, and he's a dead theologian, so you know he's even better. He would talk about Jesus being the manifestation of God, that God the Father has a, like this thought in his mind of what, the, what his image is, and that image is Jesus Christ. And he's fully manifested in Jesus Christ. So if you think about that, God the Father, the picture of him, his exact image is Jesus Christ. And that then what happens is that the Father looks at the Son and so delights in Him, so takes such pleasure in Him, that He is so moved by Him, that there's so much delight and pleasure found in His Son, that that pleasure is um, a full entity in and of Himself. And that is the Holy Spirit. And so this picture of Father and Son and the delight and pleasure. And power between them is so powerful that he, he is a distinct person himself. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, there's a good chance that you're half asleep, and that's okay. But for those of you who just think about that for a second, that the pleasure between father and son is so intense that it actually forms a third person, the Holy Spirit. You see that in the baptism of Jesus. When we talk about that's one of the key passages where we see the Trinity represented because Jesus is baptized and then the Father speaks, this is my Son with whom I am pleased. The pleasure of God the Father on the Son descends in the form of a dove. And this is important. It's important we think about Christmas and think about the incarnation. It's important that we hold on to these statements as we celebrate this. That God is three persons. That each person is fully God. There is one God. It's important because the incarnation is not God the Father displaying himself as the Son taking on a different form. That heresy is called modalism, but it's this idea, like we just said, that that Jesus would be talking about his father in this kind of weird way, that he's kind of just like, I've got these different forms, I take on these different forms, but then he's talking to each one of them. He talks about him going so another one could come. And that's not what's happening in the incarnation. It's not God the Father displaying himself in a different form. It's also not the creation of Jesus, which is another heresy, historical heresy, that kind of keeps popping up all the time. We find it today in, in um, forms like Jehovah's Witnesses. Like we, it's, it's been all throughout history. There's nothing new under sun, the sun. The same heresies just keep popping up over and over again. But the idea that the incarnation is not the creation of Jesus. John makes this plain. In the, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. He was God. Not anything came into being without him. He was there. And it's also the incarnation. Jesus coming to earth is not about Jesus, one of the gods, determining on his own to go to earth and rescue the people that God the Father has condemned. That's believing in three gods. The Father sent the Son. They are of one mind. They are in perfect unity. The Son cannot do anything apart from the Father. So the incarnation is a Trinitarian act. And only in the Trinity can the wondrous truths that come with the Incarnation be realized. Otherwise, we don't have the beauty of the Incarnation. We don't have the beauty of Christmas. That the Word would become flesh, would be born as a poor baby, subject himself to his own creation in order to live the life that we could not live and die the death that we deserved and raise from the tomb, defeating sin and death for all eternity for those who trust in him. We don't have that without the Trinity. And it is mysterious. And we will never fully understand it. And I want to encourage you to embrace that mystery. In the history of the world, it is our post-enlightenment westernized culture that is least accepting of mystery. We don't like it. We like to know how things work, and we like to have a picture for it. We like to have a definition for it. We want to know it. We expect to know everything about everything. We rarely make room for our own lack of understanding, let alone humanity's lack of understanding. And so when Jesus says this, look at the the last, um, if, if you're in Mark chapter 12, in verse 37, after Jesus says, look, how can David call him my Lord if he's his son? The last sentence there is, the great throng heard him gladly so he gives them this riddle that there is no way they can possibly comprehend or answer and it says the great crowds that the throngs heard him gladly i don't know for sure but i think if jesus would have said these things to our modern western culture we would not have heard him gladly we would have been frustrated and confused we would have asked a million questions. we like, well, wait a second. But how does it work here? And what does it mean here? Well, how do you define that? We want to know everything. How many of you like surprises? Really? Okay. Okay. Some of you like surprises. Okay. Some of you, like, I just love the fact that some people raise their hands and the person sitting next to them like, what you do? Uh-oh. Um, like, so you like surprises. Like if you, if, then how many of you don't like surprises? Okay. Right. Most of our culture actually doesn't like surprises. And if you're one of those people who say, I like surprises, I just don't like to know one is coming. Well, then you don't like surprises because the surprise thing is like, hey, pack your bags. I'm not telling you where you're going or what you're going to need, but you're just going to pack your bags and we're taking off in the morning. If you don't like that, you don't like surprises. And our culture really doesn't. We don't like surprises and we don't like mystery. We like to know what's going to happen. We like to know how to explain things. And I think that has fueled much of our frustration in our faith. It is found in the fact that we think God should be easy to understand. It makes us ask all kinds of questions of why God? Why are you doing this? Why would you allow me to suffer? Why would you allow these things to happen? Why would you be doing this in my life? It all carries with it an understanding that I should be able to understand all of your ways, God. You should be able to explain everything to me in a way that I fully comprehend All of who you are and all of what you are doing. We struggle with the paradox that we find in Scripture. We struggle with the tension. We struggle with the mystery. But I want you to know something this mystery will never be fully solved for you, not even in eternity. So if in your mind you're thinking, okay, well, this is one of those things that right now I don't understand, but when I get to heaven and when I'm glorified and when I'm not hindered by sin, then it will all make sense. I believe, and I'm not alone in this belief, that you you and I will not understand the Trinity fully, even in heaven. It is too big. It is too magnificent because in heaven, you and I are still the creation We will never be the creator. We will never be able to think about this. God is so big and so immense and his ways are so beyond our ways that even when you are completely unhindered by sin and you are completely unhindered by the brokenness of creation and you are there for millions and millions and millions of years, you and I will still not fully understand God. It won't happen. But we will delight in him. It will no longer cause us frustration. It will only stir worship. That's what I want us to see. So finally, why why does this even matter then? (laughs) If it's so big, and it's also been so key in all the heresies that the church has ever had to fight off. Like you get the Trinity wrong, you get Christianity wrong, period. Period. It is so crucial. We're not talking about baptism. We're not talking about um, like tithing. We're not talking about like there's so many things that that there are gray areas that godly people disagree on, but not the Trinity. So why does it matter? Why is it good news? It matters because it says about God that he is completely self-sufficient in all things. Okay, stick with me now here. This is where it's beautiful. Because God exists as the Trinity, he is completely self-sufficient. Everything that he needs is found in himself. There is nothing we can give him that he doesn't already have, including love. I mentioned how I didn't grow up in a a church that taught the Bible, but even I knew the last part of, of this verse. I can find it. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So now in the church I grew up in, we only quoted the last part. It was just God is love. And that meant all kinds of different things for all kinds of different people. But C.S. Lewis, in, in his book, Mere Christianity, writes that when people say God is love, they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. They believe that the loving dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever. So what does this mean? Think about you and me. You and I cannot experience love apart from another person. You can't. You can't receive love and you can't express love, whether it's in a marriage or a friendship or any kind of relationship. You and I are incapable on our own of expressing and receiving love without another person. But it's not so with God. Like, so, so with me, like, I'm only a father because I have sons. I have children and a daughter. Lydia's not in here, so she's not gonna get mad at me, but... I have children, so therefore I'm a father. I have a wife, therefore I'm a spouse. I'm a pastor because I have a church. I'm not a pastor. If if I'm not shepherding people, then I'm not a pastor. So my identity and those things, my ability to love and be loved, is completely dependent on the fact that there are other people there. Not so with God. We talk about all the time that we can't pay God back for his gift of love and mercy on the cross but also because he doesn't need us to. There's nothing we can give him that he doesn't already have. This means that when God created the earth, he didn't create it because he needed someone to love. He didn't create it. He didn't create us because he was thinking, you know what, I feel incomplete. I need something to complete me, so I'm going to create humanity so I have someone to love. That's what other religions have to say because of the Trinity, we don't have to say that. Here's why this is so beautiful. We were created not to be loved, but as an overflow of God's love. This is incredibly important. Listen, we are not primarily the object of God's love. We are the fruit of it. He doesn't need us. Unlike us, the Trinity, his, his, his identity is completely rock solid. He doesn't look to us for validation as God or as Father. And because of that, he loves us freely and selflessly. He offers himself to us as a gift, needing nothing in return. If the Trinity didn't exist, that wouldn't be the case. If you called God Father and he needs us to be Father, then he isn't fully God. So you can know, here's, here's why this is so beautiful. Remember, we talk about this all the time, how God is love and how God loves you despite of what you do, that he, we love because he first loved us. Listen, you can know because of the Trinity, because God is fully consumed, like he is fully self-sufficient in the Trinity, we know that he loves us, not because he needs us to love him back, but because he is, is the overflow of his love just poured out onto us. Like, have you ever been loved by someone who didn't need you to love them back? They just loved you. You didn't need to do anything. You didn't need to give them any affirmation. You don't need to, like, make up. You know, you, you, nothing. You just, just because they love you. Well, God does that perfectly. So you can know that you are loved not because of who you are or what you are able to provide for God, but because he is God and God is love. His love is what supplies the love in your relationship with him. It isn't a two-way street. That's how he's able to love us even when we don't love him. This is why his grace is irresistible, because he supplies all that is needed for us to be in relationship with him. And that's because he is fully sufficient on his own. That is not true if the Trinity isn't true. Because of the Trinity, he is the source, the fount, and it is overflowing. Nothing that we can do can make that fount overflow more. It is the complete source of all things. He supplies the faith. He supplies the love. He supplies the power. There's nothing you can do to lessen or improve upon that. That is what we mean by unconditional love, and it can only be found fully in the Trinity. And it is amazing to be loved like that. There are a few pictures that we have in our culture that would even come close. We talk about unconditional love as humans, but we have no idea what real unconditional love is apart from the Trinity. No idea. And when I am loved like that, I can love others like he loved me. This is why we talk about our identity being firmly in Christ. Unlike God, we cannot experience love apart from external relationships. But to put that weight on another is doomed for brokenness and failure. Many of you have been in dysfunctional relationships like that, where you knew that the love that you were receiving from this other person was very dependent on the love you were able to give them, what you were able to do for them, who you were. And if you lost that, if you lost your way, or if you weren't the person, I hear all the time in the secular world of like, well, this person, we got divorced because they're just not the person I married. Duh. I'm not the person that Lauren married. I guarantee it. I'm way better. It's not you know what that's like, right? Like, you know, it's like that's a crushing burden to feel like if I don't perform for this person, they'll stop loving me. If I don't start keep filling up my end of the bargain, then they'll stop loving me. They'll lose interest in me. And it is a crushing weight. But when you are fully loved by the fount of all love, when you are so secure in that relationship, when your identity is fully in him, then you no longer need that from other people. You enjoy it. It's a beautiful gift. It's a reminder of God's love. It's something we should seek to do, but you no longer need it because all the love that you need is flowing from the infinite source of all love. And when you are loved like that, you are able to selflessly love others, asking nothing in return. And you love like Jesus. To be loved by the Trinity is unlike any other love you could possibly know. And the the last bit, I'm just going to give you one more. And that is in the Trinity, because of the Trinity, we have true unity with diversity. And that is a beautiful thing to celebrate. The world loves diversity right now, right? We talk about diversity all the time. We need diversity in everything. All kinds of diversity. And then on the flip side, we have the traditional kind of religious fundamentalism that wants unity in everything. And not just that, but nationalism, where we want unity in everything. That the most important thing is not diversity, it's unity. We need to think the same way and be of one mind. And what's really fascinating right now is to see our secular culture just implode on itself in valuing these two things. We need total diversity and we need absolute unity. We need to all think the same and we all need to be very different. Have you seen that in our culture lately? Everybody's different. Everyone's an individual snowflake, and you all should think the same way. It's crazy, and it's crushing in the culture. It's collapsing in on itself because of it. But the reason why we want that is because it's wired in us deeply. And the reason it's wired in us deeply is because that's what we see in the Trinity. We are created in this image. We are created in the image to say, I want diversity. Everybody is unique. Everyone is an individual that God has created. He's handcrafted each person. And yet I want unity. I want to be like-minded. I want to be with people. I want to be one with people. That desire is placed there by the Trinity. It's in the Trinity that gives us the confidence that male and female, though they have different roles, are completely equal and both image bearers of the God, not one more than the other. Men are not more of an image bearer of God. Women are. And that's something that the church has had to repent for over the years of of messing that up. It's the Trinity that gives us the confidence that there's beauty and the diversity in the body of Christ across cultures and across the church family. It's why the gospel can go into a, a foreign culture or a foreign country and not demand that it looks like what it looks like in the United States. If you go and worship Jesus Christ in, a, in some other culture, like in the Far East, it looks like a Far Eastern culture worshiping Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. Christianity is the only one that can do that. Any other religion in the world, when you have that religion come in there, all the cultures and everything start to look the same. But not in Christianity. We love these things. We love unity. Think of times where your family or your community or your country rallied together. Like obviously for me, in in my generation, 9-11 was a huge thing. 9-11, the whole country kind of rallied together, put aside all of our differences for about 12 days. Right, But it was still, for those 12 days, it's incredible. You see a, a natural disaster happen in a community or sometimes in your own personal family, a family tragedy that bonds people together. But most of our lives are spent dividing. We divide into camps. We try to determine if people are for us or against us. Our moments of unity are small, case-specific, and fleeting. But imagine experiencing true unity. Not just a unity of purpose or rallying around a specific cause, but actually being one. That's the kind of unity that is preached by the apostles, and it's preached that way because of the Trinity, and only because of the Trinity. Because in the Trinity, we have this beautiful picture of what it looks like to have diversity and unity together. So when Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from my love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And later in that chapter he says have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So though they are distinct persons they are perfectly united they are of one mind they are one God. And when we are fully united with Christ then we experience full unity with one another. Not temporary, but eternal. Not around a particular purpose, but to our very core. So just look around the diversity in this room. Just even in this room right now, the only thing you all have in common is probably that you have four-wheel drive. That's it. Other than that, we are so different. And then you multiply that across the world. If we brought a a group of people from an underground church in China right now and had them sit in one of the sections, the world would say we have nothing in common. And yet, because of the Trinity, we know that we have everything in common and that we can actually be unified and that when we are in heaven, we won't all look the same. That when we are in heaven, all those tongues will still be spoken. All those things, those differences will still be there and we will be of complete one mind. Every other religion has to diminish diversity. But only in Christ can we have different views on politics, different ways of dressing, different ways of speaking. Only Christianity thrives in diversity, and it's because of the Trinity. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. So the one thing that the, the culture gets right about Christmas is that they say it's about magic and awe and childlike wonder. And they have no idea how right they actually are. I want to encourage you to embrace that, min- that mystery this Christmas season. And embrace the mystery that God exists as three persons, each fully God, but he is one God. And that because of that, Jesus comes to earth, is born in a stable, in a manger, and grows up to live the life that we could not live and die the death that we deserved. And because of that, we are brought back to God the Father as sons and daughters in our diversity as he has created us, but in full unity, being loved selflessly as a free gift. Let that ring in your head. When you think about the free gift of Christmas, understand that it is only because of the Trinity, that that's what it means to be loved and fully known when God says, I, you have to give me nothing to, except to be loved by me, and to be known by me. So we're going to take communion this morning. And I want to encourage you to realize the Trinitarian act that is before us, that God the Father laying out his plan, Jesus presents it and that it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. In this moment, you experience means of grace, a remembrance of how the Father brings his children home through the Son, and that it is the Spirit who seals us and gets us there. Trinity is a massive thing. It is a mysterious thing and always will be, but it is a beautiful thing. Let us rejoice and celebrate it together. Father, help us to grasp the beauty of this mystery. And to know that because of the trinity we are able to be fully loved by you because you do not need us to love you back but you love us as an overflow of the love that you have experienced for all eternity nothing has ever existed outside of you and that is so hard for us to wrap our minds around but we thank you that it's true We thank you that because of the Trinity, we know that we are able to be redeemed by you, that we are able to be your sons and daughters, that we are able to be loved freely and fully, and that we are free then to love others because our identity is so strong in you, the source of all love, and that we are free to celebrate the diversity among us and yet have one mind because there's one spirit. There's one God. Help us as we take communion to be mindful of these things and if nothing else, to just be in awe and wonder of who you are.